sin takes. Jesus gives. That's the whole point this morning. Sin is a taker. Jesus is a giver. That's where we're going. Genesis chapter 22, we're going to start reading in verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. He himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And those verses are harder to read now that I have a kid. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. And he went and over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have not, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Let's pray. God, we come back to your word. We've been in your presence with your people. And we come to your word asking that our hearts will be formed by your word into your likeness. And we say it again as we often do. The name of Jesus is the only name that we're here for. Anything that's for me, that's my ideas, let it be revealed so it can be forgotten. But what is from you and faithful to you, let it echo in our hearts so we would be formed by your truth. And when we leave here today, let the only name in our minds be the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm not superstitious, but I am a little stitious. Would you rather be feared or loved? Easy, both. 
I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. I am Beyonce always. I knew exactly what I was doing. But in a much more real way, I had no idea what I was doing. I feel God in this chill. No, not as many people. How about this? How about this? The only thing I hate worse than lying is skin milk, which is water that's lying about being milk. <laughs> I just saved your bacon. Impossible. You don't know where my bacon is. Some of you, some of you are with me. Some of you are completely lost. I think it's funny that when I was thinking about quotes to reference that I knew most people in the room would pick up on immediately, I thought of like The Office and not the Constitution. <laughs> says a lot about our culture, right? Um, if you if you're not with us, those were just out of context quotes from the shows The Office and Parks and Rec. Um, if you didn't get that, you're not missing out on anything. That just means you have not spent as much time in the black hole of Netflix. Stay strong, resist the temptation. You've probably lived a more full life than the rest of us. It's okay. It's interesting that something would have that much of our attention in this cultural moment, isn't it? It's interesting that there's something in the market of ideas right now that I can say out of context to a room full of people and almost everybody in the room has seen the show or at least seen a meme about the show so they know what I'm talking about. It's pretty interesting. In the ancient world, there was not a surplus of ideas. In the ancient world, there were specific stories that were formative to the people. In the ancient world, there wasn't a market of ideas. There were formational stories that were told from generation to generation. We live in a world where it's remarkable that all of us have seen the same show or the same, or the same TikTok or the same reel. But in the ancient world, if you were part of a people, if you were part of a family, then you were told the same stories and you had the same stories memorized. And you told those same stories to your kids. In fact, much of what we know as the Old Testament scholars believe was originally, was originally oral tradition. Which means before it was ever written down, a grandfather or a grandmother would sit around the table or sit around the campfire and they would tell the stories of their God and the stories of their people to their kids. And the kids would sit there, they'd heard the stories a hundred times, but they'd sit there locked in, memorizing every word so that they could tell the stories to the people after them. Because the stories formed identity. You could reference a story overtly or subtly and everybody would know exactly what you're talking about. Because the stories formed identity. The stories told you who you were. The stories told you who you could be. The stories told you how to deal with conflict. And most importantly, they told you who your God was. And how your God interacted with you. The stories formed everything. Now here's what that means for us today. The Bible is self-referencing. The Bible assumes knowledge of Scripture. Because the Bible is full of stories that form the identity of their people. So the people who wrote down the Bible 
If you're reading Genesis chapter 22, they assume knowledge of Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. They're going to reference themes. If you read Genesis 45, then the Bible assumes knowledge of Genesis chapter 22. If you read something later in the timeline, the Bible assumes knowledge of what came before in the timeline. In fact, the book of Genesis is often thematically dense and complicated because those themes play out over and over and over again in the rest of Scripture. You read the prophets, and sometimes directly they're quoting the Old Testament, that they're quoting the Torah, the Pentateuch. Sometimes they are hinting at it and implying it. And if you look, read one story through the lens of another, the story unlocks. If you read the New Testament, the New Testament's written with the Old Testament in mind. When Paul, when the writers of the letters of the New Testament were writing their letters, their scriptures were the Old Testament. So they're writing through the lens of the Old Testament. When Jesus was living, he was living through the lens of the Old Testament. In fact, this is just worth saying. There is a pretty famous pastor who pretty famously said recently, I'm not going to name names because we're not trying to kick dirt at anybody. It's just worth mentioning that said... Uh, We need to unhitch Jesus from the Old Testament. The problem is Jesus wasn't unhitched from the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't unhitched from the Old Testament. The New Testament is seen through the lens of the Old Testament. The New Testament assumes you're familiar with the Old Testament. If you want to see how Jesus is the king we never saw coming, but the king we needed, you need to see how Jesus is retelling the same stories that have been told from the beginning and how he's the conclusion of the story that was started in Genesis. The Bible is self-referencing. So we come to this story. This story of Abraham and Isaac. And this story is obtuse. This story is offensive. Honestly. Reading this story now that I have kids is a lot more uncomfortable than reading it before I did. I don't particularly like this story. And for those of us who grew up in church, sometimes we can miss how offensive this story is because we've heard so many sermons preached about it that that we're all God keeps his promises, God keeps his promises, and they all jump straight to the cross. And and we skip just how offensive and how confrontational this would have been to the original audience. This is a story, and we've got to get into it if we're going to see what's going on here. So this is going to get just a little bit heavy, just... Just so you're aware, this is a story about someone's God asking him to sacrifice his son. I cannot imagine why Abraham said yes. I can't do it. I cannot imagine a world of saying yes to that. And it's not not just his son. That is plenty on its own. But that's not only what's going on. Isaac doesn't just represent the son whom Abraham and his wife Sarah love. Isaac represents the fulfillment of a promise. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham. And Abraham was called to be a blessing to all nations. And he was told he was going to have offspring that was going to outnumber the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. And all nations were going to be blessed through him. And Abraham and Sarah lived most of their lives trying to have kids. And they were unable until very, very late in life, until God finally fulfilled the promise in Isaac. In fact, Abraham and Sarah tried a few chapters back. They tried to speed up God's plan. They tried to put their thumb on the scale to make it happen a little bit quicker. They came up with a plan for Abraham to sleep with Sarah's servant. And Ishmael was born. And they thought, okay, we have offspring. Now God can do what he promised. They were trying to make God's plan happen faster in their own time. And it turned into this conflict. And honestly, one of the most 
tragic stories in Genesis, in my opinion, when Ishmael, who wasn't his fault, gets sent out into the wilderness with his mother. And a family is divided. Which, just for the record, God protected Ishmael. Because even when we hurt people with our plans, God is faithful. Even when we go around God's intent, it doesn't affect God's faithfulness and His care for those who are hurt. But after all of this conflict and all of this waiting, Isaac is finally born. And God comes to Abraham with a test. I want you to go up on the mountain and sacrifice your son. And I cannot imagine a world in which Abraham says yes to that. But you remember the Bible is self-referencing. The Bible assumes knowledge of Scripture. Just for the record, if you're new to Scripture... If you're thinking, I don't know all of those things that could be referenced here, you you might have a little bit of an advantage because you don't just gloss over all of the interesting things. You're able to be a little bit shocked by the shocking things for the first time, and that can cause you to ask the important questions. Those of us who have read it a thousand times aren't shocked anymore, so we don't ask the good questions. So if you're new, sometimes you have an advantage. I, I would argue that the person writing this story down had Genesis chapter 3 in their mind. When they wrote it down. Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Adam and Eve, the original humans, are given one rule. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We talked about that last week. The tree of independence. The tree of I don't need you to tell me what's right and wrong. The tree of separation. And God gives them a warning. God says, if you eat from the tree, you will surely die. Interestingly enough, Adam and Eve didn't immediately die. The first death we see in the story is a murder. And then we read time and time again through the rest of the story between now and then how death works its way out into the world in violence and how life shortens and how pain and suffering invades every area of human life. But the interesting thing is up until this point, God hasn't demanded a sacrifice. Adam and Eve sinned, but... God hasn't demanded death from anyone. See, I think the original readers of this story, who were very familiar with Genesis 3, would have come to this story and they would have thought, it finally happened. This is the death. Of course, if we want the promise fulfilled, something's got to die. Of course, if we want God to be faithful, something's got to die. In this world, it's nearly impossible for us to imagine in our world, but in this world, human sacrifice wasn't necessarily common, but it was something people would have been familiar with. It would not have been unheard of. It wouldn't have even been abnormal for someone who had committed a great sin against their God to be expected to sacrifice on an altar the thing they loved the most. That would have been common. It would have been pretty common in this day if you had a large request or if you were making some sort of deal with a god that you would be expected to bring your best, the thing you loved the most to that god and that oftentimes played itself out in a human. And it certainly wouldn't have been 
outlandish if you were expecting some sort of blessing or some sort of favor or some sort of promise to be kept from that God. It wouldn't have been outlandish for you to expect to give the thing you love the most on the altar. I don't think Abraham was surprised when God asked him to go to the mountain with his son. I think Abraham hoped this day would never come, but now it was finally here. He'd probably known people who had done things like this as part of other belief systems before. And he knew the stories. He knew what sin led to. He knew what it cost for God to be near humanity. I think what he was surprised by was God interrupting the process. I think this story reveals two correlated facets of human nature. One is our consistent desire to speed up God's promises and His plan. Um, our consistent desire to take control in some way. We, when we believe God's promised something to us, we, we want it to happen as quickly as possible. We don't like to wait. And oftentimes God's timeline is not our timeline. So we speed up the process, just like Abraham did with Ishmael, with his, with his wife, with, his, with Ishmael's mother, Hagar. We speed up the plan, and we speed up the process, and we, we try to put our thumb on the scale, and we, we go around God's plan. Maybe we lower our standards in a relationship because we want this thing that we've been waiting for. Maybe we're willing to make an ethical compromise at work to try to get ahead because we need God's provision. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's something we genuinely believe God has promised us, so we're doing everything in our power to make it happen to figure out how to game the system so that God's hand will be forced to give us what we want instead of patiently wait for God's timing. Maybe, maybe we get a little bit lazy and try to speed things up instead of faithfully doing the work in front of us and trusting God's provision. Or the most common thing for me at least is to believe that something I want is something God's promised. And then to try to make that happen. Make God give me that thing. But this other facet of human nature that this story reveals is the, the way we interact with God. It's what we expect out of His character. Are there any dog people in the room? Dog people? Yes, God's chosen. Um, have, you ever, have you ever come home from work when your dog was at home and you found a huge mess Maybe there was like poop on the floor, maybe a pillow had been destroyed, something like that, right? One time we, one time we came home and our dog had pooped in the floor and covered it with a shoe. I was just depressed. I was like, you are so smart. A cat wouldn't do this, but a dog. Um, but you, you know what the dog is doing every time you come home and they know they've messed something up, right? The dog's in the corner, cowering. The dog knows it did something wrong, and it doesn't know when it's going to happen or how it's going to happen, but it knows something's coming. So the dog comes over and will like, like sneak up to you and try to cuddle so that you can prove you still love it, you know? Or, or the dog will just not come near you for a while until it makes sure everything is fine. I think this story shows us that oftentimes when we come to God, we come not knowing when the punishment's going to happen or how the punishment's going to happen, but we come expecting the hand to fall at some point. We all know our sins really well. 
been doing ministry for a while now. I've met a few people that are convinced they're not sinners, but not many. And I'm convinced those people are just lying. <laughs> Most people I know are pretty well acquainted with the darkness of their own heart. So we go to the Lord waiting for the sacrifice to be asked. We go to the Lord waiting for the rug to get pulled out of us. And then when something happens, we assume it was the Lord that did it. We assume when something goes wrong in life, this, this is the just payment. This is this is what I get for my sin working itself out in my life. That's what this is. So we go to the Lord like that dog, just a little bit nervous. We go to the Lord, maybe, maybe trying to get as close as we can so he'll prove he still loves us because we're afraid that maybe he doesn't anymore. Or maybe we try not to get close at all because we don't know when he's going to lash out. And, and why wouldn't we think like this? Because we do not live in a world of mercy. We don't live in a world of generosity. We don't live in a world that's often marked by kindness. I mean, some of us grew up in homes where we can constantly, constantly felt like we were failing. Where our parents weren't generous and kind to us. So why in the world would we imagine God is generous and kind? Why in the world would we imagine God isn't demanding some sort of sacrifice? We, we go to work and our jobs are, our bosses are always asking more and asking more and asking more. We look at the world around us and everyone's always trying to make a deal for their own advantage. We look in our own hearts and if we're honest, we see the same thing there. Why would we expect anything else from God? Abraham certainly didn't. I know people disagree. Some people say that when he said to his son, God will provide the lamb, that he was acting in faith. Maybe. I find that hard to believe. I think Abraham was just expecting that the hammer was finally falling. But that's what this story tells us. What this story tells us is that sin takes, but Jesus gives. Sin is a taker, but God is a giver. See, this is what God did with Abraham in this story. He took Abraham exactly where he was expecting to go so that he could prove that he was not the God Abraham was expecting to meet. He took Abraham exactly where he was expecting to go so that he could break down Abraham's expectations and say, every other God will demand everything, will demand what you love, but I will give you, I will give you my love and I will give you my mercy and I will give you my generosity, which is why Abraham in complete shock and awe turns around and says, this is the mountain where the Lord provides. This is the mountain of the generous God who provides, who does not take. Listen, sin is a taker, but God is a giver. Sin demands death. God gives his life so that we can be free from death. Sin is a taker, but God is a giver. This is what this story is telling us. Why do we never expect God to be generous and kind to us? Because we don't see it anywhere else. And we certainly don't behave that way to ourselves. That's why Jesus is the king that we never saw coming. Because everywhere we look in the world, we look expecting the hammer to fall. Expecting the rug to be pulled. And we're constantly surprised when Jesus is still generous and gentle and kind to us. 
Because that is how he's always been. Listen, we're this far into the Bible. People think the Old Testament is full of violence and hatred and pain, but it's actually full of God subverting our expectations and proving that he has always been the God of mercy and love and generosity. This is who Jesus is. Sin takes. Sin takes. That's what both of those facets of human nature have in common. They don't trust God's generosity. In one of them, we try to make God's plan happen because we don't trust that if we wait, He'll prove faithful and He'll be generous. In the other one, we cower and we're afraid because we don't actually believe that God's generous and kind. Tim Mackey in the Bible Project points out that one of the primary themes of the book of Genesis and the whole Old Testament is that people assume God will run out of generosity and run out of blessing. They assume that blessing and generosity is a limited resource that we have to pay for. But not that God is a generous God who gives. Paul would say it like this in the New Testament. He would say, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. When we work for sin, we get paid in death. But our God is generous and gives life. Nelson, there's a difference here that we need to be careful with. There's a difference between consequences and punishment. We have all had something taken from us. Because sin is a taker. Some of us, it's our own sin. And we can look at our lives and we can say, I made this decision and it has changed things. Something was taken from me. By my own sin. Some of us, in perhaps the greatest tragedy, we can look at our lives and we can say, something was taken from me by someone else's sin. And some of us, perhaps all of us, have found ourselves in a place in life where we say, I don't know who did the taking, I don't know who did the sinning, but something was taken. Because we live in a world marked by sin. We live in a world where things happen that we can't really point a finger at because sin is a taker. We live in a world with that reality, but we also live in a world that God comes near to us and constantly says, sin might take from you, but I'm not taking. I know some of you are trying to quote that verse where it says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Let the name of the Lord be praised. If God takes from something from you, it's because he's generous and has something else to give, and that thing's in the way. Sin might give to you for a minute so it can take for a lifetime. God might take something that's in the way so he can give for a lifetime. Sin is a taker. God is a giver. Jesus gives. So every time we are so angry and, and, and we're bitter at ourselves and we look at our own hearts and, and, and we're, we're so convinced of our own sin that we want to put ourselves on the altar. God says the same thing he did to Abraham. Do not harm him. Do not harm her. I provide the sacrifice. And every time we are so angry at somebody else. And this is where it gets hard. Because there are people that deserve our anger. But every time we get so angry at somebody else. That we say put them on the altar. They deserve it. God says do not harm them. I provide the sacrifice. And when we get so fed up and tired with a world that's full of brokenness and pain. That we want to burn the whole thing down. We want it all on the altar. We're ready to cut it off and to disconnect and to just... Remove ourselves from the whole world around us emotionally. God says, no. Do no harm. 
I provide the sacrifice. Because sin is a taker. But Jesus is a giver. The character of God is founded in generous love. And he will never run out of generous love and mercy. His justice is most beautifully proven in his mercy because he provides the sacrifice. You can go to the Lord with confidence. Because he proved on Mount Moriah that he's not like any other God. That sin takes life. But God gives it. Last week we we concluded with the application of confession. We confess our sins so we know we don't need to hide them. We live in freedom from our sins when we confess them. So it can be dealt with. And we talked about how confession is telling the whole truth. Confession isn't just I sinned. Confession is I sinned. God forgave me. I failed. God loves me. Confession is the whole truth. This week, if, if, if this idea takes us to one spiritual discipline or application, it's that of generosity. Because the character of God is revealed in generosity. If you want to show the world what a God who does not demand life but gives it is like, be radically generous. Give to those who don't deserve it and can't repay. Give to the point that it hurts. Be radically generous. In a world that is convinced we're going to run out of everything, give it away. But probably the most important thing you can is be generous to yourself. Choose to view yourself through the generous mercy of God. Choose to look in the mirror and see that the sacrifice was already paid. You don't have to be afraid. God is looking at you with generous mercy and love. If I could confess something to you, I've said this before, but... I don't know that it's changed a ton. I talk about myself in a way I would never tolerate anyone else being talked about. When I think about myself and when I describe myself in my mind to myself, I am so unkind. If someone ever talked about my son like that, I mean, it'd be going down. But I'll talk about myself like that. Because deep down I have a really hard time being generous to myself. With my words, with my time. But God isn't running out of mercy and love and favor and blessing to give me. Not blessing like cars and boats. Blessing like peace and purpose and fulfillment and healing. It's not running out. I think the most valuable thing you could do in response to this message is choose to be generous to yourself. In the way you speak to yourself. In the way you think of yourself. God is generous. He is a giver. Don't let sin take anything else. From your own.